Here we go. Hello and welcome to the Louis Theroux podcast. Presented by me, Louis Theroux. Today, our guest is the amazing actor and director, Samantha Morton, star of, well, too many brilliant films, but including Minority Report, directed by Steven Spielberg, Sweet and Lowdown, directed by Woody Allen, Morvan Caller, directed by Lynn Ramsey, more recently, The Whale, directed by Darren Aronofsky. Basically, she's been in tons of extremely high-quality films. She's also directed a high-quality film called The Unloved, which we talk about in some detail because in some ways it's a roadmap to her early life. It deals with a young girl growing up in care, something Samantha experienced firsthand in her childhood in Nottingham. The usual warnings to do with intimate, sometimes gritty content, strong language, drug use, sexual abuse... We recorded the episode remotely, just me and Samantha in our respective homes, and the production team in theirs, so slightly at long distance. All of that and much, much more coming up. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you, speak to you. Likewise. It doesn't feel very... It's it's odd with this kind of... I suppose if we were in person and we are going for a walk, we wouldn't be with anyone else. It would be... It's just the two of us. Yeah. Would you prefer that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll forget they're here. They're behind their little digital curtains. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. No, it's an honour. I'm a huge, huge fan. Oh, my God. So it's amazing oh my God. to I'm not, I'm not that good at... I, I get overstimulated by compliments. I want them, and then when I get them, it makes me feel mm-hmm. overwhelmed. But thank you for that. I could just start talking about which ones you've seen and enjoyed, but people wouldn't learn that much about you, maybe. All right, tell me one that you've seen. The one in South Africa. Or are you going back now? The one when I first... I mean... I think it's just the education of thing, how you communicate with people and how it opens up in a very gentle way conversations about things that aren't normally talked about. For me, I didn't really understand very much about South Africa in the same way as when I was at school and my brother was serving in Northern Ireland. I didn't understand the politics as a kid. You know, nobody really talks to children in that way. And then years later, I was doing a job in Ireland and I was so excited getting my punts in Nottingham. Like I got my Irish money and I went over to Dublin and I had some rehearsal and then I got the train up to the north working on my accent. I went into a pub. I went to spend my money. I went to buy a pint of Guinness and they said, oh, we don't take Irish money here. And I went, what do you mean you don't take Irish money? I'm in Ireland and I can't spend Irish money. And it was like, whoa, you know, I must have been 17. And it was like a real like, oh, fuck, I didn't realise anything about Northern Ireland. I didn't know anything. So I think in the past when I've seen your documentaries, unbeknownst to the viewer, you're just getting a massive education all the time without it being rubbed down your throat. It's nice to hear that. Yeah, I think a lot of these things that we think of as being complicated or opaque, like geopolitical issues or sociological issues, they're actually very human dramas. I know you grew up in a situation that was in some ways very deprived and you went into care and... And that's one of those classic subjects that some people might sort of glaze over. Like if you read a story in The Guardian, it says new report on care homes. I'd be guilty of sort of saying, I don't think I'm going to read that. It sounds quite dry. But at the heart of all these kind of perennial social issues are the most compelling. I don't mean to sound vampiric, but actually extremely relatable and deep human dramas. 
Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. And so yeah. in the end, like these issues, keep using the word issues, but these social issues are played out in a small scale between just humans. Just like human beings, human yeah. People. These personal yeah. stories, but this idea that human beings exist that have those thought patterns. It was just mind-blowing to me, all of those things. Let know? me ask you, before we, we went quite deep, quite quick, you're talking to me from where? Home. I was told you're in LA, is that right? No, I live in England. No, no, I'm in England. I live out of a suitcase, really, like a lot of actors. So I'm about to go to France for five months and was in Atlanta for three years, on and off, making The Walking Dead. I did used to live in New York when I was younger. I loved that for a few years. But LA, I've never lived in LA. I've rented like a house there for work and stuff. But no, I can't drive. Can you not? No, and I love the bus. You could actually lose half your life if you tried to get around LA by bus. And their train system is sadly really bad in America. The city's become sort of coterminous with the industry. Like, do you get on what with... What does coterminous mean? Well, like they're the same thing. I know, it's such a pretentious right. word. But do you get on with Hollywood, like the industry? I don't know. I, I think... don't get on that well with the industry. Mm. Maybe because I'm not that recognised there. Interesting point. It's hard being a small cog. You know, obviously yeah. you've got a lot of credibility there, like two times Oscar nominated, amazing history of roles, but you've never lived there. It's, I guess so. So I guess that's just to do with the driving, is it? It's not just to do with driving, it's to do with mental health. And I think that living in a city where everybody is, it seems hungry and desperate for, when I was younger, I used to think it was for fame. And now I believe it to be for survival whether it's your health care, just feeding your family, whatever, it is a really tough place to be right now, America. But I love America, like love it. I mean, I remember arriving to do some press for Jane Eyre and arriving in New York, people say, oh, you're either going to love it or you hate it. I remember being at a crosswalk and seeing you know, a Hasidic Jew and a black man and a white woman and everybody's just doing their thing. It's Manhattan. And I was like, I'm home. I always felt an outsider being in care, growing up in care, being a child of the state, being judged and hated and treated like shit, basically, for just being alive. And here I was in New York and I was like, well, everyone's accepted here. You can just get on with your life and you can make a success of it. I also love aspects of Hollywood. I love old Hollywood. I love the architecture, the Spanish architecture. I love the fact that there is a lot of can do. Like, we can do this. Like, you know, whereas where I'm from, it's a bit like, just sit yourself down, have a think about that one. <laughs> you know, I mean, I come from a culture where it is so naysaying. So this is not for you. That's not your place. And I don't feel very English at all. I'm British, but I don't feel very English. My family were Polish-Irish. And then I was in care my whole life with loads of different foster families. So for me, I feel most at home in New York. But LA it does inspire me and I love the light. I love light and I love heat. So I take the best bits and then the rest, I'm like, it can just, excuse my language, it can just get to fuck. I just don't take it on board. I don't get involved in any of that stuff. I never have. Did you say it can just get to fuck? Yeah. Is that the yeah. phrase? You yeah. said it can just get to fuck. That's not a phrase I've heard before. <laughs> because it seems superfluous. It seems unnecessary to put my energy into worrying about those things. I mean, I remember being told when I was very young and doing very well with films that I was overweight. I was like eight stone and I was a size eight, you know, I was tiny. This was like in the mid to late nineties where there was this thing that you had to be a size zero. And I remember saying to my team, if you like back then, I will never I will never fit into any of those boxes. Like, you know, the missing piece meets the big O, the Charles Silverstein thing. I will never be that. I'll never fit in there. So don't try. It's just never going to happen. And when I was offered lots of very, very big movies when I was younger, with all sorts of things attached to them, stipulations, I just said no. A big movie opposite some big movie stars of the day, still are. And one of the requests was, you don't know your screen test, you've got the role, and you're going to dinner with the heads of the studio and the director and the leading actor, and could you please wear a skirt? Because they haven't seen you in a skirt yet. You've just been wearing jeans the whole time. And I said, is that a request? I might have worn a skirt anyway, Lou, but I wasn't going to fucking wear a skirt because they told me to wear a skirt or requested I wore a skirt. And they said, well, they will recast you. And I said, well, great. It's probably going to be a shit film anyway. Just sod it, fine. So I've always had that attitude. And with magazines like Vanity Fair, they didn't really embrace me from the off. I think I was too political in a way. I think they thought I was trouble. And now all the things that I was trouble about are being embraced. Equality 
being able to speak for yourself and be heard and have a healthy working environment, I was considered difficult. So I love my industry. I wouldn't be here without it, do you know what I mean? I don't think the British liked me very much for a long time, so I'm really chuffed that the Americans did because I wouldn't have my home, I wouldn't have the financial security that I have. I don't know what I'd have because the British didn't like me. They thought I was trouble as well. What makes you say that? I mean, I've been immersing myself with great pleasure in your films, the ones I hadn't seen, and the TV work as well. And what I haven't picked up on is any sense that you've ever been unliked. When I was younger and I was doing a lot of telly work, I would be 16, 17 years old and I'd be doing incredibly long days, six-day weeks, working on good stuff, but I would be asked to do things that now just wouldn't happen. So, you know the way that they would ask me to remove my clothing for certain scenes in Band of Gold, say. And there wasn't an etiquette about that. Band of Gold was the TV series that you, one of your first roles on, was it on Channel 4 Yeah, it was was on ITV. I did Cracker first and that was kind of big. And then I auditioned for Cracker and Band of Gold in like the same day and got both parts. It was great. But let me try and as articulately as I can, without sounding bitter, give you a little bit of a brief history. So in care, all my life from birth... So lots of different foster families, going back and living with my dad when he was out of prison, then going back to different foster families. Then you get to a certain age where you're not cute anymore, you're not good anymore, and you cannot be fostered. So you are then put into children's homes. And some of these children's homes, well, most of them have been closed down. You know, lots of independent inquiries and public inquiries now about those particular homes where the most horrific abuse was happening in those homes. Just can I pause you one second? Yeah. Foster care is where you're living with a family. Are they getting a small income from that? Yeah, yeah, they do, yeah. I don't know what it is. Which is part of why they do it, presumably? Because in theory, like, they could adopt you, right? No, 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 that's very complicated to be adopted. You have to be legally allowed to be adopted. So I was on what's called a matrimonial interim care order, which meant when I was very, very little, when I was taken into care for the first time, my mum was very, very poorly. She'd had a breakdown and was in Mapley Hospital. My dad suffered serious bouts of manic depression and he was also a member of the Socialist Workers' Party. We were living in communes. It was very idyllic in some ways, like looking back and the banners and his political things and him playing his guitar and making bread and growing the vegetables. It was all like looked great, but there was some serious downsides to all of that. Let's say, for example, an average person suddenly got sick and was in and out of hospital. They were a single mum, single dad. Sometimes the authorities would help that individual and say, listen, you've got no other family, no one can take your child, the child will go into care for a little bit whilst mum or dad gets better. That's kind of a nice version of a child being taken into care because there's just nowhere else. So that child, let's say it's doing really well at school, say it's nine years old, might just go with a foster family, a local foster family, on a short-term foster placement whilst mum or dad or carer gets better. I started off on one that was a bit like that because my dad was poorly, in and out of prison. I never lived with my mummy, sadly. She, I was taken away from her at birth pretty much and then never, ever lived with her because my mum and dad also separated when I was very, very little. And my mum was in hospital, bless her, for her illness. And so I had this childhood like that. And then I was in these children's homes. I was was running away from all the time for various obvious reasons of abuse and neglect and all the rest of it. I was very angry. And then I was put into a homeless hostel at the age of 16. They call them independent units where you're meant to learn how to cook and take care of yourself, pay your bills. But you basically, you haven't got long there. And luckily for me, at the same time, I'd always been going to this drama workshop that I'd also been kicked out of for drug taking. I did this show called Go Wild and Chris Packham presented Go it. Wild, I remember that. That was the nature show. It famously yeah. had a very funky theme tune that sounded a lot like the horn break from Uptown Funk. Anyway, yeah, so I'm getting off track. No, no, no. Well, I was one of the presenters on that. Anyway, I just discovered going out to raves and I, I remember taking something and not coming down off it, but still getting on the bus in time to go to work. And I was still really out of it. It was live television. It was a disaster. So I was kicked out of the workshop. So that was really heartbreaking for me because I'd been really badly behaved. Didn't really see it as being badly behaved at the time. I was just having a good time. How could they tell? Oh, You're not making any sense while presenting the show? I think show? I was making a lot of sense, but I was properly like, I think I fell over... I was just not the usual Sam. But the point was... It probably exists somewhere, that It does. I used to get Auntie's bloomers. I used to get money for that. So I think I fell over with with Fungus the Bogeyman or something. There was some... Yeah, anyway, I got chucked out of the workshop, which was really sad for me. 
But the thing was, I was in a bit of trouble living in this homeless hostel. I'd already been kicked out of the workshop that was giving me a lot of positivity, helping me because I was writing poetry, writing plays, putting them on. And Ian came up to me and he, I got in touch with him to say, listen, can I be forgiven? How do I, how do I redeem myself? How do I make everything better? Because this is the only thing in my life that I feel is positive. And he was amazing. He came over, he read some of my poetry and he said, so listen, there's this audition in London and it's to play Runaway. And I think you'd be really good at it if you want to do it. And I was like, yes, yes, please. And he gave me the train fare to London. And that was an episode of Peak Practice. And I played Abby, the blind runaway. And then I never stopped working, touch wood to this day. So I'm really digressing here, Louis, but I didn't have a transitional period between Sam, the care system, in trouble with the police, to being a young adult working in the industry. So there was no transition. There wasn't a gap year for Sam. There wasn't anything like that. So I took a lot of my, if you like, street smarts and brought them to set. So if somebody asked me to get my breasts out or want to see my nipples, rather than saying, no, I really want to speak to my agent, I would just be like, fuck off. You don't say that on set. You articulately engage with people in conversation. And I was a little scally and not had any kind of training in that way. So that was why I got a bit of a reputation early on for being tricky, because I didn't have the skill set to articulate when I was uncomfortable or if something didn't feel right. Or so I had to learn all that. In a way, you, you had an even better skill set, which was, you know, an instinct for self-preservation. People suffer as much from being overly agreeable and kind of going along with things. And sometimes you have to be a bit of a dick in order to state your terrain and not be violated, right? Absolutely. And I think saying yes too much is, is a problem. But I think also it was because these were older men that were asking these things of me. Older men in their 40s, saying to me, a 16, 17-year-old young girl, we're doing a scene now, and the scene might say, Tracy is in bed with a client. It doesn't say I'm naked. It doesn't say I'm doing anything. And I would arrive on set, and the director or somebody would say, OK, we need no top on here. And I'd be like, really? And the wardrobe girls and the makeup girls would be so kind to me and be like, right, what we're going to do, we're going to put corn plasters on your nipples. So that way, if the camera comes down, they can't use the footage, Sam, because you've got plasters on your nipples. I'd be like, OK, thank you. And so I started off being like, I had to do everything that was asked of me. And then I got upset. And then I'd start to say, I don't want to do this. And then say, but you have to. And then the battle happened. I'd be like, well, fuck off. No, fire me. This is not OK. And I didn't have mum and dad on set. I didn't have a chaperone because after 16, you don't have a chaperone. So that's where the trickiness came, I think. And being very strong-minded about crew and hours and people being taken advantage of and not treated very well. Was this UK or USA or both? Never America. I never had these problems in America. I just feel really safe within the boundaries of how they operate and how they function on a film set. You know, and I think that's because America's so litigious. You know, people have their pay grades and you ask someone a question, they ain't going to answer if it's above their pay grade. They don't want to get into trouble, which I understand and I equally don't like. But in the UK, certainly in the early 90s when I started, things that went on were like, this is not okay. You don't have to answer to anyone, Louis. On a film set here, let's say we've got our production company. We hire people in. We do what we want to do. There's no human resources. There's nobody behind the people. So who do you go to? when you're being bullied or you're being taken advantage of in ways that are just not professional. You've got nobody to talk to other than your agents and your union. And equity ain't that strong. SAG are fantastic in America. They support you. You've got any problems. Anyway, I'm waffling about negative stuff. No, and no, I don't no. This want is all good. This is helpful. Stuff. While yeah. we're on the subject of impropriety on set or bad practice, can I ask about Harvey Weinstein? Little bit, and then it might be boring. I- I'd read that he made some reference that your arms... He didn't like your Yeah, arms. and that I was unfuckable. I was meant to be doing a movie with Heath Ledger, Matt Damon, what's it? Brothers Grimm. Brothers Grimm was the name of the movie, right? Yeah, and ultimately it just wasn't going to happen. And it was kind of a lot of mean stuff was going on. And the role was offered to lots of actresses, but they were all told, listen, we've offered it to Sam, there's complications. And most of my friends at the time just said, no, I'm not going to do it. If I'm not wanted for the role, you know, Heath wants Sam, Matt wants Sam, it's meant to be Sam, there's just a little problem with Harvey. And it was to do with bartering over cinematographers and they just play all sorts of games. But it made me kind of question why he was so anti-me. So I was doing a movie in Philadelphia 
and I must have been about 19 or 20. I was young. And he'd seen a movie called Under the Skin that I'd done that did very, very well at film festivals. And it was the film that Woody Allen saw and then cast me in Sweet and Lowdown. And, you know, Miramax loved me. I was brought into the offices. It was all amazing. And then this role was offered. And I said, I, I don't like it. I think the film is really misogynistic and I don't, I don't want to be part of it. The casting director came back with, you don't say no to Harvey. And I said, well, it's not to him. I just don't want to do this film. Are we going to say what the film is or was it never made? Yeah, it was called About Adam or something. Stuart Townsend was in it. He played the guy. And I'd just worked with Stuart anyway on Under the Skin. And I was like, that's not interesting for me. And I was uber polite, but I had a phone call saying, you can't say no. And it just, the no wasn't being listened to. So they kept coming back with this role. And I was told unequivocally, you're not going to work again unless you do this role. I'm going to make your life hell. You will not work again. That's Harvey. That's totally his MO, isn't it? Yeah. So the person asking me to do the job was pleading, just do the job. Just do it. It's Miramax. Then you're in there. You're in the Miramax stable. And I said, but it's rubbish. And this whole conversation happened. I forgot about it because it was years earlier. And then all these years later, I realised that I get an offer, I get a letter from a director. If Miramax or then the Weinstein Company had anything to do with it, it was just awful for me. And then I very publicly called him out on some of this behaviour at the Venice Film Festival at a, at a press conference, which must have been about 2002, that there was some weird shit going on here. He had a reason, a deep-seated reason, to just try and destroy my career. And he couldn't. He categorically couldn't, because I kept working, doing independent cinema all over the world. So evidently, that was how he operated, was quid pro quos... You do this role for me and I'll give you this better role over here. Yeah, he controlled the table for a long time. And let's just say he's a convicted rapist. I mean, that's the whole other side of things. Regardless of bullying and all the rest of it, we're talking about a sex offender who was allowed to be a sex offender. You've, you said you've worked consistently, and that's really striking how much you've worked. This might sound like a weird question, but are you conscious of having a gift? Like, I know some people are confident in their talents, and then some people have what they call imposter syndrome. And to what extent are you aware of being a gifted actor? Wow, that, she's thinking. I think mean, this is radio, <laughs> so I have to fill the silences. She's looking like I've really stumped her. <laughs> Do you have to think about that? Uh, think about how to find the words to answer you. <laughs> so I don't sound like an absolute wanker. Because you are talented. It's like, it's like some brain surgeons don't think like, oh, I don't know. I guess I just got lucky. Do you know what I mean? I think that whether it's acting or writing or music, I'm able to access another dimension, if that's the right phrase, of human behaviour. Like I understand things in a very empathetic way. I see things that other people don't see and can very quickly translate them in order to perform them. I don't know if I have a gift as an actor per se, because I don't know about that, because I work with other actors that are meant to be amazing at what they do, and I think they're shit, because I think that they are just mechanical, and I can see the cogs, and I think, oh, they're technically very brilliant, but I don't feel anything. I don't think they're really giving me something from in here. Really? It's like, There's yeah. actors would be cruel to... Not going to say anyone. I'm so fussy though. I'm not going to say anyone. But I I literally... People you wouldn't work with, like big names you like, I'm not working with that person. Yes, Yes. categorically. Because it's all up here. It's not down here. It's not in the heart. (laughs) It's not just heart, Louis. It's something else. It's it's something else. You called out Liz Hurley. That's on public record. You said she wouldn't do street theatre in Poland. (laughs) (laughs) It was quite a weird benchmark. It's like, where are you on the street theatre in Poland, (laughs) Omata? I do street theatre in Poland, but I don't think it would make me a good actor. I was a kid. I was very young. I don't know how that was asked. You know, to be fair to Liz Hurley, who I've never met, she's an actress. There's so many different types of us, and we're all under the same brolly. But, you know, there's a lot of people... She's not good, though. I mean, I only saw her in Austin Powers, and it's really odd when you see bad acting, because you don't see it that much... When you see bad acting, you're like, oh, wow, that is what... That's yeah, what but they're protected so? by good editors. I've worked with some people that literally can't say a line. And they're huge. They've got their acting coaches on set by the monitor. Really? They're called their voice coaches. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that's by the numbers. And I think what I get from your... Looking back over your filmography, you've done extraordinary films and you've really 
picked a path. I don't know if it's a road less traveled, but you've worked with such interesting people, you know, all the way from Spielberg, Harmony Corinne, Charlie Kaufman, like all those auteur directors who have really distinctive voices. Yeah. So just saying that, I'm complimenting yeah. you on that. And Thank to each you. role, you bring a quality of whatever it is, like authenticity or some kind of vulnerability, just a really complex screen presence. Oh, I should mention Tom Hooper. I wanted to mention him as well, because your role in the TV film Longford, in which you play Myra Hindley against Jim Broadbent playing Lord Longford, was also amazing. Thank you. People don't ever mention that, so that's really helpful. I tell you what, when you look back at your... Um, I mean, there's so much to dig into. Is there work that you're particularly proud of? I loved playing Alpha in The Walking Dead, but not a lot really? of people, like arty people, if you like, have seen that role, because... It's a horror show and it's um, season nine. My son said, he was excited that I was speaking to you because of The Walking oh, wow. Dead. Yeah. I jumped off the bus at season four. Some yeah. of the writing, I think the way you are with acting, maybe I am with writing. And some of the writing in season two was a bit wobbly. And then it came season five. Some of the characterizations, I was like, this isn't consistent. And yeah. you know, it is a lot of episodes. So forgive me if I haven't seen that, but it's nice to hear that you're proud of it because quality television is a beautiful thing. But I don't know if the episodes are any good. I'm just proud of what I did in my role. That sounds very arrogant and eager. How many episodes did you watch before you took the role? Just the first season. Barely get started. Because I didn't have telly then. I lived on a farm in the north of England and it was grade one listed, so we couldn't put anything on the outside of it. And we didn't have internet for a really... You don't have to make excuses. No, no, it's not. I literally, when the show was offered to me, they were like, what, you'd never heard of the show? And I was like, I remember seeing a billboard with Andrew Lincoln with a big cowboy hat on. That's good enough. Did you tell them that at the audition? Well, this is the thing. <laughs> you don't... Do you do an audition? Just in passing, do you do an audition for something yeah. like that? Or they, they say, no, no, you want Samantha Morton, you know what you're getting. She auditions for nobody. <laughs> Oh. Are you kidding me? I should put the phone down on you right now. Oh, I would audition. That's me being your agent. Yeah, thank you. I would audition. But I also like to audition other people. They want to meet me, I want to meet them. So the offer comes in and we get on a Zoom or we meet for a cup of tea or coffee and you just you walk away and go, do I want to work with those people? No, no, no. You know, so that's what happens. And I think that's really sensible because the worst thing is to just spend months of your life with people that you have nothing artistically in common with. It can be very, very miserable. But I'm very proud of that role. It's the hardest thing I'd ever done, the character itself. And it was like, yeah, I loved it. It was my first American television. And so I felt really proud that that muscle had been exercised. Because American television is very different to British television. And I can say, oh, In what I've way? How is it different? Oh, it's brutal. <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> to do that many hours, the scripts are coming in at a fast pace, learning things. You just feel like top of your game. Like I felt amazing doing that. And then some movies you do, they take so long and there's, you know, there's a lot of money wasted. And Can we just do it? Can we just get there and just do it? Can we talk for two seconds about Tom Cruise? I love Tom. I was a bit overwhelmed by his enthusiasm to start with because when you've done a good take and he's like, yeah, and he's so enthusiastic. And I didn't know how to be with that at first. I hope I didn't come across rude to him when I didn't do the high fives. He would do a high five after a scene, like, that was an awesome take. Yeah, Sam, you killed it. Yeah, he's so enthusiastic and stuff. And I was really And it's hard when someone's bringing that energy, you feel like you need to mirror it, but then you feel like you're not being the real you sometimes. Oh, I wouldn't even do the mirroring. Just didn't know how to respond. (laughs) So I think I was a bit in the Agatha zone of like... I wasn't method and I'm not a method actor, but I do certainly like to find a space where I can, at any given point, if I'm asked to do something, be able to perform it. I mean, I was still, what was I, 21 or 22? 22, this was Minority Report, for those who don't know, a film directed by a little-known director. Actually, he should get more attention. His name is Steven Spielberg. (laughs) Mr Spielberg. He was lovely. Tom Cruise called you lightning in a bottle. Oh, that's... I I mean... Maybe I was when I was younger. I maybe maybe I'm a bit more sleepy ship in a bottle now. I don't know. Harmony Corinne, who I've got a slight fascination with, famous director of Gummo, Julian Donkey Boy, and the one you were in, Mr Lonely. Yeah. About lookalikes holed up in a Scottish castle, also starring <laughs> Werner Herzog, yeah. a fellow documentary maker. Yeah. You played a Marilyn Monroe lookalike. I just Falling in love with really... a Michael Jackson impersonator. What a great script. Him and his brother wrote that. 
it's just this beautiful concept about all of these lookalikes who are always on the road, always doing their work, just decide to live together in a commune and just the dynamics of all that. And my daughter Esme, who is now an actress, that was her first role. So she played the Shirley Temple lookalikey in that. It was a really beautiful time. I confess I haven't seen it yet, but now you've encouraged me to seek it out. It's sweet. It's just sweet. And finally, John Carter. <laughs> Did you think I was going to mention that one? It's the 10th most expensive film ever made, directed by Andrew Stanton, who'd previously directed Finding Nemo and Wally. It was his live-action feature directing debut. I went and saw that at the cinema. Do you know who I played in it? I'm not going to ask for my money back. I believe you played <laughs> Solar, a Thark. Yeah, Princess. So when I got this email, my agent was like, so there's this, you know, Andrew Stanton wants to meet you for this big John Carter of Mars. It's Edgar Rice Burroughs, and I love Tarzan, so I loved Greystoke. Right, who wrote like, Tarzan. Oh. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, amazing. And all it said in the thing was, Princess Sola. And I was like, I've never played a princess before. Because I'm normally, I've got so many stories where I've auditioned for films and I haven't gotten because of my features. My forehead's too big, I'm goofy, overweight, underweight, whatever. How do they say, well, they would say, oh, we loved Samantha, but her forehead was just a little too big. Yeah, they actually did say that. I had a massive slaphead, a big fivehead. <laughs> Come like, on. I don't think they're allowed to say that. Well, they, they wouldn't did. put that in print. They, well, I don't know if they put it in print, but this was a problem. So I was, my ego was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to meet Andrew Stanton to possibly play a princess. And I go into the meeting and he's got all the artwork everywhere. And then he's like, so this is Sola. And I was like, oh, she's an alien, a green alien with like four arms and they're about seven foot. And Willem Dafoe was already cast as my dad at that point. So I was like, He was yeah. the other... Fark. It was this three-picture deal and it was going to be amazing. And it was before Flash Gordon, before any of these superheroes. This is the original superhero, basically, what John Carter does. It's sort of does. the ur-text of any kind of space opera. It was written in the late 19th century. Yeah, like 1910 or something, something like that. Precursor to any comics, any of those things. I was really excited. And it's Andrew Stanton. Oh, my gosh, he's incredible. So I was really chuffed to get the part. And then I knew something was wrong when they weren't doing any big premiere. No, 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 they had a little screening and there was no posters and there was no press. And I was like, what's happening with this film? We we're meant to be making the second film in Hawaii. And a third, two more. Yeah, yeah, and I was meant to be, to be pretty much a bigger part, like the lead in the second one because the dad dies and I'm like the queen of the Tharks now. And I was so excited because I had a great time filming the first one. It was incredible. There was no feeling on set that this could possibly be a clunker. No, 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 no. It was a really good time. I loved it. We shot in Arizona and in studio. It was just amazing. And then, yeah, they bought Star Wars, Disney. So they decided to pack it off. Is that what it was? Yeah, really? yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then, so they didn't promote it, didn't push it out there. It was fine. I was a bit sad to not work with Andrew Stanton again. But that happens. And it was, an, again, another experience, you know, like doing the television. There I was in a big action film kind of thing with a funny suit on with ping pong balls and a helmet with cameras and learning Thark. They actually wrote a language for it. Yeah. I read that. Yeah. The same people thark. who developed Navar-E or yeah, Navi. Yeah, for what's it? Avatar. Yeah. They worked up a language. So you actually learned Thark. Yeah. <laughs> I should have learned. Dominic West probably... was in it. Who did Dominic West play? Just as a test. Dominic West played a prince that was trying to get Did off he play with... Sab Than, the Jeddak of Zodanga? <laughs> I think he did. Or Tardos Moore, the heck of the Oh, he wasn't Tardos Moore. I don't think he played Tardos Moore. <laughs> Who knows? I think what I read was that actually that source material so mined in the Star Wars films, it's almost like, oh, this looks like a pastiche of Yeah, but it's the Star original Wars, one. It's whereas so it's sad. actually the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. It was overtaken. But do you know what? It was a lot of fun. You're listening to the Louis Theroux Podcast. Hi, me again, Louis Theroux. Just to remind you, you're listening to the Louis Theroux Podcast. And now back to my conversation with Samantha Morton. 
we covered a lot of different things. And I, I want to, um, you mentioned that you notice things. You said it's not so much acting per se, but you see things. Yeah. Do you yeah. relate that to anything? Do you think that's to do with having grown up in care or do you think that's just a natural gift that you had? I don't know, but I do know that it's about spirit. I would have thought as someone who is taken from their home, is going into other homes, is moving around foster homes and then residential care homes, someone who is in a new environment has to acquire the skill of noticing things about their new life very quickly in order to survive. Of course, yeah. And in a way that can help with your acting, isn't it? You know, I can look back and go, well, I was always acting a little bit. New family, new rules, new ways of foods, new religions. But I think what I'm talking about is something other. I don't know, like having a very active imagination, maybe. Music having a profound effect on me. And not everybody feels those things. Not everybody, I think, is as connected to... We call them the arts, you know, but it's connected to those things. So there's something else going on there that even if I wasn't doing acting or drawing or music or any of those things, there would be an element of what I bring to playing characters in my own life. And I think it's humanity, isn't it? I think it's um, trying to be a decent human being. Did uh, you, I know music is important to you. And, and, and I read recently that, I don't know if this is true, that you did Desert Island Discs and that maybe off the back of that... You, you will be recording some music. You've got like a record deal. Is, is that right? It isn't wrong, but it wasn't like that. I did some work with a musician artist called Chris Cunningham a few years ago, and he's a an old friend. The director, the video yes, director. Yes, no? yes. Didn't he do the famous Aphex Twin video, yeah. Come to Daddy? Yeah. Come yeah. to Daddy. <laughs> he did all that, yeah. The same person. And so Richard Russell, musician, producer listened to the Desert Island Discs and heard the Molly Drake song on there, the Firelight song. It's one of my favourite songs. Right, Molly Drake, who's the mother of... Nick Drake, The yeah. folk legend Nick Drake. Yeah. And you had one of her songs on your Desert Island Discs. And Richard heard it and then was making his album, Everything Is Recorded. I think he was wanting to sample a bit of me talking about a blue butterfly. He didn't want to go through agents and stuff, which is fine. I, I like that sometimes when people just want it to be a bit more personal. So sent me a message through Chris saying, listen, could I sample your voice? And if you, you know, want to come to the studio and listen to the music, see if you're happy with it. And I was like, yeah. So I went to meet him, heard the little bit of a sample, said, yeah, of course you can use that. You can have it. It's fine. Me talking about a butterfly. And then we just started talking. A couple of hours went past. And we decided that we should make some music together. And it was just, there was no pressure. It was just nice. It was like, this is what we're doing. And then after a bit, it was like, you know, we've got a lot of stuff here, Sam. And I, th I think we're like a band now. We're, we're a synth pop duo. And I went, oh, we've been doing this for like six months or something. And then all of a sudden we had a lot of songs. It was like 18 or so songs that we'd made. Hang on. Were you singing or were singing you playing Singing and an writing instrument? and piano. Singing, writing and piano. And so you play piano quite well. I plonk. Okay. I make stuff up. I wish I could plonk. I'd, even planking would be something. <laughs> it's not trained. And then, yeah, we had like all these songs and then we were so proud of it. So we decided that this is what we're going to do. So we are releasing an album. Yeah. Richard Russell. Yes. Do I have the name right? Yes, you do. He's very well credentialed is what I've been told. What's he worked on? Is he a producer? He's a musician and a producer and he also has a label called XL. I would know his work from... He did the amazing Gil Scott Heron album. The one that... Gil Scott Heron recorded late yeah, before he died. Yeah, really? that, that's that was Richard him. Sound. That's Richard, yeah. So we are going into rehearsal in September. Yeah, going to rehearsals for the live shows. You have to come to one, Louis. Oh my God, I would kill to come. Yeah. It would be amazing. I hope you like the music. This is the thing. This is like I'm now. sure I would. You know, yeah. I've enjoyed your musical choices in your film, The Unloved, and then a lot of the music. Basically, I watched Morven Caller for the first time last night. Almost feeling oh, like, wow. oh, this was the missing piece of my 20s that I didn't <laughs> know was missing. It's almost a, an existentialist road trip with a female protagonist, sort of anti-hero protagonist, without giving too much away, with this amazing soundtrack. It has sort of Aphex Twin and Boards of Canada and quite a lot of Can, the German, yeah. the Krautrock yeah. group. And then I don't think it's giving too much away to say that it starts with she wakes up next to her dead boyfriend in their flat. And all the way through, you're like, what is happening? Like, you're constantly trying to figure out the choices she's making. 
There was an extraordinary, beautiful... It's Lynn Ramsey's the director, isn't she? And she wrote the screenplay, yeah, as well. And, and wrote it. So Alan Warner wrote the novel, amazing Scottish writer. You know, he did The Sopranos, he's an amazing writer. He can really write for women. He can write for girls. Sometimes male writers, when I read their writing, I'm like, oh, as if, get to fuck. You wouldn't do that. Oh, I don't believe that. And Lynn wrote an incredible screenplay and directed exactly. it. Exactly, and, and very... you're constantly watching it and thinking, like, whatever that test is, where it's like, is there more than one woman in the film? Is it actually a film in which the women have agency and aren't just adjuncts to the men? Yeah. This film passes that test with flying colours in the sense that... I think that... it was ahead of its time as well. And also you think like, oh, no, she's going to get assaulted. Like, you just think it's going to go down some sort of path... Oh, OK. ...that would leverage some sort of victim narrative, mm. right? Because they're obviously vulnerable. They're off their tits, if I can use that phrase, clubbing and having romantic encounters with men. And you think, like, oh, this isn't going to end well. But that's not where it goes at all. It goes somewhere completely different. Mm. And I think it must be interesting watching the film from an older person's perspective than if you'd have seen it when it came out. How dare you? Are you suggesting that I'm an older person? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It is, though, because we do see things with fresh eyes. It's like watching Gremlins with the kids. I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this film. It's Christmas film with the kids. And it's so rubbish. And you're like, why is Gremlins so bad? Some films don't last at all. Whereas more I than thought Callum, Gremlins 2 held up quite well. I haven't seen Gremlins 2. Better than the first Gremlins. You know, I had the same experience, though. I spent a lot of capital, figurative capital, social capital, trying to get my kids to watch a film I remembered from my childhood called Candle Shoe, which had Jodie Foster in it. OK, I'm going to write that No, down after down. five minutes, I was like, OK, fine. It was so, so these bad. Some of these films don't work, but when young people... So there was a screening of Morven Callow, I think, at the NFT recently, and young people watching it loved it. Like, it really had, you know, time travelled well. But, yeah, it's interesting the kind of the worries that we might have as adults now watching that film about them being in danger or having encounters with young people of the same age whilst high or drunk. Yes, or I and think it feels high risk in this day and age. It but does, but it not there. I mean, I don't know, students back then, I don't want to give too much away about the film. It's normal but life. Would... And actually, my point was simply that I enjoyed that it wasn't trying to be a kind of Me Too fable or a fable about yeah. consent. It's about something kind of weirder and more interesting. I don't even yeah, know just, what it was very... about, actually. Well, it... <laughs> <laughs> Do you? Because uh-huh. by the end of it, you're like, I think I like it, but I'm not really sure. And, and... Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to give away, if anyone out there does want to watch this film, first of all, it's Lynn Ramsey, if you know Lynn Ramsey. So it's, it is really good, just cinematically and all the rest of it. But there's something quite inspiring in a pretty dark way about how she claims the right to have a future, to have some kind of other future than what's been prescribed for her. And interestingly, in the book, she was a foster child and she was kind of there in Oban. Imagine being a teenager sometimes in places like that. You know, it kind of can be tough. Well, in the film, because I actually watched it while reading, this is going to sound odd, while reading a transcript because I was missing parts of the dialogue. And the scene where Morvan arrives and knocks on a guy's door or he comes to the door and he says, I've just found out my mum's dead. And then she goes in and says, do you want me to tell you about how my foster mum died? Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So it's these kind of subtle That's references their to line. the past. Yeah. That's their, and then they're bonking. <laughs> yeah, well, they're dancing first. Dancing and drinking. Yeah, dancing and drinking first. Yeah. I'm glad you watched that. Um, that's cheered me up. Oh, it was so that. good. Yeah. I loved that and I loved The Unloved as well. Thank you. And I thought, wow, you're a terrific director. I like documentary-style direction. I, I'm a kind of a pervert for nuance and texture. So if things feel not quite believable, even if they're in the intonations and and mm. how people relate around each other, it takes me out of the moment. Yes, filmmaking can be really pretentious as well in those kind of, you've got something happening, but we're going to frame it this way because it's more interesting and you miss what's going on with the people. Yeah. What I got was um, verisimilitude, like truthfulness in terms of, it's really about abuse among other things, but the way in which the abuse is enacted, it's very finely grained and it's horrendous and at the same time, the people are behaving exactly as people behave. If that makes sense, like the girl slightly seems to imagine she might be giving consent, but clearly is in no position to give consent. And the guy's preying on her under the guise of caring for her. And yeah. as an explanation of those dynamics, it felt very subtle. Well, I think your job as a, my job when I'm behind the camera is to just try and find the truth and then just not be too invasive with the camera. That's why I sometimes I don't want to do too many cuts or too many takes. 
So I do a lot of rehearsal prior to shooting with the young people so that they're so comfortable with the camera. And this was a while ago now, so we're talking 2007, 2008. And now so many young people are very comfortable with cameras because Instagram, TikTok, whatever, they're used to seeing themselves. Back then it wasn't so much. So in the rehearsals, I'd be filming everything so that by the time we got on the set, the camera was like just so they could forget it was there. So they weren't performing for the camera. And likewise with the camera, letting space and light happen because when bad stuff happens, there's a tendency for certain cinematographers or filmmakers to want to get right in there let the audience see what's happening as close as possible. And I think that when those things happen, the earth is present as well, the light is present, the space is present, and they're just as important as the thing itself. So how does that person feel? Let's say, for example, they are being molested or abused. I'm always fascinated in what are they looking at? What can they see on the wall? It's not always telling the audience what they're feeling physically. It could be where they're at mentally just allowing that process to happen. And then obviously things can always change in the edit. But also working with children, you know, letting them be in that space and, and in their character. The two female principal characters, one is, I guess, an 11, is she 11 or so, yeah, the girl? Yeah, yeah, fourth And there's junior. a 16-year-old and it sort of follows their friendship. And they're both extraordinary in, in the performances. And one's coming into care in a residential home and she's put in a room with a 16-year-old and at first they... <laughs> she gets on the older girl's nerves and then they kind of rub along. Yeah. And there's a great scene where they go shoplifting or one goes shoplifting <laughs> and t brings the little one. And then it's so gobby with the security, right? You know, fuck off your plastic police. And then <laughs> is continuing to be a gobshite in the car on the way back when the police are escorting her. You don't for a second sort of not believe it. Like it, it just feels Good. like one of the moving things in your film is the girl, the younger girl experiences the abuse vicariously. Like she witnesses it. She's in bed seeing it happen and, and a lot of the camera is on her face or her hiding her face as the older girl's being abused in her bed and it's a very powerful way of doing it seeing both the impact not just on the victim but on the the witness to the crime is really powerful but I was going to say just as upsetting or even more upsetting is to me it was a scene where the young girl goes home to see her mum and her mum seems almost a little bit miffed initially anyway to see her daughter home a bit like what are you doing here yeah. and I just wondered how close to reality that was in terms of your own experience of your mum. That film could have been like a six-part telly where you understood why she was estranged from her mum. I wanted to take this character through that character's day or the next day or the next day and not explain anything. So you're just with Lucy all the time feeling how it is to be that person and that's all we can do if we want people to think differently this happened to me, I don't think this was okay. What do you think? Can we make a difference? Can we make this better? That was my motivation all the time. And in reference to my mum, my mum had lots of different jobs. She worked all the time, whenever she could. And she was an amazingly dedicated grafter, if you like. She worked at Port Farms, double shift, and she didn't want to be late for work. But my mum also, and we don't have very long, so I don't want to get into it too much. My mum also suffered extreme complex post-traumatic stress syndrome. She was very, very mentally poorly a lot of the time due to things that had happened to her when she was younger. And Susan Lynch, who's one of my favourite actresses of all time, plays her so beautifully. And you have all the moments, the fantasy moments, where Lucy is in bed with her mum and just the closeness of those moments, the dreams that Lucy has about having a mum. I never had a mum in the way that Maybe other people do, but then everything's relative and everyone's got problems in their families and it's how we forgive and we heal and we love each other and we're open to change. So I don't feel sorry about those things and I was never cross with Pam, who was my birth mother, but I had a fantasy about having a, a mummy like they were in the movies. Is she still alive, Pam? No, my mum sadly died 2017. She died quite young of, um, of lung cancer. My foster mum died of breast cancer, Sue. And it's like they were all my mum. So sometimes they say, oh, my mum died of breast cancer. And then Sue like, but I thought your mum died of lung cancer. Oh, no, that was Pam. That was my real mum. Because I've got so many mums that have been my mum for a bit. So she was dealing with her own things. I don't know, dealing with. I think she was just getting by, just going to work, coming home, fighting the social services to try and get custody of me at various times when she was well. Yeah, she was doing her best. Always doing Did she have best. a diagnosis? I'd really like to be able to get hold of her records. 
and the stuff it's hard to read it like in my files from the social services it just talks about her hospital admissions but no it doesn't really say and she was also heavily medicated a lot as well at certain times to cope with what happened to her as a kid and also the trauma of having your children taken away from you well i i, I would just mentioned briefly like you know clearly that kind of subject matter which is about vulnerability it's also about predatory behavior and you know i've made several documentaries about sexual abuse or predators or sex offenders and i've also made documentaries in prisons and mental hospitals and and i've often thought about whether i could make a film that was somehow based in some kind of secure unit for children or children in care and but what you keep coming up against is I could never see a way of making the film that wouldn't in some way end up compromised because of the need to take care of the kids, right? Like, There's no film that's worth making if you think there's a chance it might end up hurting the kids. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you did was perfect because it's better off to do it as fiction. I think that if they're young adults, let's say the government considers a 16-year-old now as an adult, so you're not taking care of past 16 when you're in care. It should be 18, but they're not making it a legal requirement for local councils to take care of those young people. So if you were doing something in a secure unit, Louis, why can't those things be made? You're not How a, old would the kids be in a secure unit? It depends, but from 16, you can get a unit above 16. It's very rare you have younger people than that. I hear what you're saying about filming the abuse and not doing anything about it, but if you don't film it, if you don't somehow get the cameras in there, how are we going to have these conversations? Because... I'm not able to make my second feature right now. Film 4 won't read it. The BBC haven't got back to me for eight months. So my second film is about leaving care. So The Unloved is about going into care. The second film is called Starlings. It's been written for a long time. They don't want to make it. Why won't they make it? Just out of interest. What, I don't what, know. What I've, not got, I've not had from? an email back from the Beeb. Just no response. And film 4 is just not for them. It's not a comedy and it's not a love story. The Unloved so, was a while ago now. Like When did you make that 2008. I've been trying to get That's it made amazing. for a very long time, different producers And actually, now. The Unloved did very well, didn't it? It got two million on Channel 4 when it went out. Yeah, I think at the time it lot. got the highest viewing figures for a single drama at the time. Yeah, it won loads of BAFTAs and stuff like that and nominated for other things, and it, it went around the world in regards to its cinema release as well. But I think if you've won BAFTAs and you've got really good viewing figures and it did really well... Why don't they want to make the second part? It's not a shit script. If it's shit, they can just tell me, listen, it's just not good enough, we'll do some more work on it. But the script's in great shape. It's just they don't want to make that content. They don't want to make grim... It's not a tough watch. As in, like, oh, this is like being squeezed through a mangle. Mm. Like, do you know what I mean? I don't mean? know. I wanted it to be financed through good old BBC or Film 4 because it's taxpayers' money in that way. It's like it belongs to the people. And this is a film about the people for the people. That's how I've always envisaged my responsibility as a filmmaker. I get offered to do other films, all the rest of it. I can't tell those stories. I don't know how to tell that story. That's not me. I'm not a director for hire per se in that way. I've just got these particular stories I want to make... People don't want to make them yet. So I'm just going to keep on my soapbox until someone said, yeah, OK, maybe we're ready for it. But this is why people like yourself I'm ready. should thank you, should go into these places and don't feel bad. I mean, there's so many brilliant documentaries out there that are incredibly tough watches. But then we have to have cameras in places that people don't want them. They've got to be there. Mm. Because people are so judgmental in the world at times. We're living in these times now where people are so kind of extremely this or extremely that. And we forget to just have a look at how it is for other people. You know, the shoe on the other foot, the realities for other people. So we get these glimpses into other people's lives and, and we see it differently and we grow up as human beings. We have compassion and empathy and we're less judgmental about things. And I think that's why films like The Unloved or documentaries that you make or the show I'm referencing just is an eye-opener and a kind of a way of loving each other, loving loving human beings. How close was it to your upbringing? Like, does that reflect things you experienced? Oh, completely, but there was a lot of blending of stories. So this bit happened here and that bit happened there. Can't put that person's story in because they're still alive. Eek, we'll move that there. So it is all true, but different characters' names have been changed and all things like that. You've gone on record in the past as saying that you experienced sexual abuse in at least one of the group homes that you were in? Yeah, there were lots of things at lots of different homes, but one particular time we're talking about, something happened and I told my mum, I still knew my mum, I didn't live with my mum, but I used to go and see her, and told my mum and Frank, my stepdad, 
and we went to the police. We told the police and the police didn't do anything about it at all. It was one of the residential care workers who'd done it? Two, two, yeah. But there were other things happening in that home as well that I made a report about. And there was other homes where I witnessed things and reported them and things were never done. But I then went and told the officer in charge at the home and my account was verified of that, you know, whatever. There were more than one person there at the time. And I was just moved to another home and those staff members were downgraded. So they didn't lose their jobs. There was no investigation. They were just downgraded. And the reason I talked about that years and years later was because of the Rotherham stuff and the the fact that the police knew. How old were you when it happened to you? I can't remember now. I think I would have been maybe 13, 19, And you knew it, not to ask a stupid question, but you knew it was wrong. It wasn't a case of, oh, I I was really shocked. The staff members were drinking. There was a lot of drinking and there were young people at that home that were... Well, on the game, they were young teenage prostitutes, but they were being abused. You don't choose to be a prostitute when you're 15, 16. You're groomed and you're put into that profession. In fact, the term child prostitute, using quote marks, I think is rightly frowned on now. Like, it's, you, yeah. it's, not, it's about child pornography. That's abuse that's been videoed. It's not child pornography. Yeah, exactly. There's, there needs to be new... It's a new language. Yeah, I... But these um, were girls who you were in the residential one, home one that you were in. One particular girl who I knew was being used by the staff. So I'd reported that anyway, and then this thing happened. And as I say, I was moved and they were downgraded. How did you know what was going on? Because you would have been, you said very young, like 13? Yeah, I was quite old. I was mature for my years. Kids like that are a lot older because of what you've experienced and people expect a lot of you, even though you're looking back and you go, I was 12, 13, what the fuck? Yeah. Were the girls confiding in you or...? No, or no, there you, was, it was an talk? older person. It's one particular girl. It was common knowledge and it was talked about who was getting what and when and why and there was a lot of drug taking in the home. But in particular... There was also a lot of sadness for me because these two particular care workers had been really kind to me for ages and ages. I thought they were cool and I just thought they were amazing because they were always so nice because there were so many really nasty ones. (laughs) And then they were drunk and this thing happened. And then what was really interesting is the police report. So after I spoke to Simon Hattonston years later... From The Guardian, you did an interview, right? Yeah, I just wanted to say, listen, things haven't changed. I reported something back then, went to the police about something that happened to me in a children's home. Nothing happened. They take the statement and then nothing is done. No investigation, there's nothing done. There wasn't an apology from Nottinghamshire County Council or from the police force. They denied it. And then we found the record, my historical records, you can find that thing. And and all that was mentioned was that I'd reported some frolicking with staff members. (laughs) And so my reasons for talking about it, and you have to remember that I have children. And so the impact of me having conversations like the one we're having now that is on the record for the future is grave. You don't just talk about these things because... I didn't for years. It was important for me that I just got on with my life. It wasn't that I was burying anything. It just wasn't, to me, it wasn't relevant anymore. But when I saw what had happened in Rotherham and Oxfordshire, I was like, no way. And I phoned Karen Maskell, who was my publicist at the time, and I said, can you help me? I want to talk to somebody. I want to talk about what happened to me and say that it was happening then and it still hasn't changed. You know, it hasn't gotten any better for young people in care. Also, I I read in an interview with you that, because I think you've been keen not to stigmatise social workers as a group, I think you said residential care workers tend to have fewer qualifications, like the bar is lower Or none. Or certainly was. Back in the 80s and the 90s, you didn't need any qualifications to get a job working in a children's home. Access to vulnerable children, putting them to bed at night, There'll be two staff members on with 16 or 17 young people ageing from the age of, say, seven, eight years old, right up to 16. Some of those care workers were 19 years old themselves, 19, in charge of a unit. So that's what it was like then. Now we have a situation where there is nobody to answer to because they've all been privatised. Children's homes now are run by private companies who then monetise, charge local councils an absolute fortune for the care of these young people. And there's nobody to go to if you're being I was abused. going to come on to that. Yeah. There is a fortune to be made. You read about pub landlords like converting properties because they can make a better cheque, getting £12,000 a week in some cases mm. for housing kids if they have complex needs. I would have been better off going to boarding school. I was a bright kid. <laughs> you know, I've often said, like, why didn't you just think about sending me to boarding school? 
the system isn't fit for purpose. The latest figures say there's about 80,000 children in care, I believe, Mm. across the UK. And there was a report last year that suggested that the system's still very much in crisis. You know, kids are being failed. Very often they're getting pushed into what they call unregulated homes, aged 15 and 16 at a point when they still need really good support and really good supervision. But what's your sense? Is it is that it's improving or not? The system is completely broken. A report that's just been done is absolutely shocking to do with the state of the care system today and young people in care. It says this is broken beyond repair. It has to be completely rethought and rebuilt from the ground up. You're listening to the Louis Theroux Podcast. Hi, I'm Louis Theroux and you're listening to the Louis Theroux Podcast. And now, back to my conversation with Samantha Morton. I just find it inspirational the way in which I'm going to sound like Tom Cruise if I'm not careful. Everything you went through and to achieve the level of success and the level of excellence you know, in what you do. You know, I I wish we could put that lightning in a bottle because I worry that there's all these talented people living in care homes or wherever, just uh, their talents aren't being recognised. Without sounding really grim, I think teachers are striking, aren't they? Everyone's striking because things need to be better for everybody. And there's always the underdog, there's always the vulnerable person, and we need to be mindful that there's always somebody with a greater need than ourselves. And I think young people watch and listen. They do have access. So we just have to keep telling them stories and keep telling them that they can get through it, that there is another day, that when it's really, really rubbish, I promise there's another day and it's better, and that there's light at the end of the tunnel. There always is. There's always a new day. And to give them hope. And then from the other side of things, whether it's through government or charities, we'll find ways to help them from our end. Do you get involved? Do you, are you involved in a charity? Do you go back to Nottingham? Not local charities, no. I work with the NSPCC and I work with the World Health Organisation trying to eradicate violence towards children and put my name to things when they need letters and things like that. But fundamentally, it's the NSPCC. National Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Yeah. Everyone knows that acronym. I don't know why I felt like I needed no, because, to No, because we get used to abbreviations for things, don't we? And when you say the words, words have such power when you say them. I know. Cruelty to children. Prevents cruelty to children, you know. Thank you so much. Thank you, Louis. Amazing to talk to you. Hopefully our paths will cross again, either here or on helium. Yeah. Helium <laughs> is the planet that John Carter went to. Well, you must be tired for asking lots of questions for Oh, no, I hours. loved it. Guys, join at Marn, Paul... Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Oh, for you. And I meant everything I said about digging into those films are so good. And especially the unloved Longford and Morvan Keller were revelatory. And John Carter. <laughs> and John Carter. <laughs> I'm so glad you talked. No one's Lynn... ever mentioned that. I love that. Have they not? Never. Never been asked about it, no. And with that, the conversation with Samantha was over. I love talking to Samantha and also diving into the amazing films that she's been in, which I recommend. And we'll have some links in the show notes to those of her productions that are available that feel relevant. She's got a totally no-nonsense approach to Hollywood, and I imagine that served her in good stead in a profession that can be, well, predatory at times and certainly exposing, you know, both literally in the sense of requiring kind of nakedness, but also figuratively that you are emotionally laid bare. Her Channel 4 film, The Unloved, is definitely worth checking out. And you can still see that online. Check the show notes for links. Morvan Calla in particular is worth a watch. John Carter, maybe less so. But it also has its charms. If you'd like to spend a little time on the planet of Barsoom, fictional representation of Mars. John Carter's failure has been blamed on its promotion, which has been called, quote, one of the worst marketing campaigns in movie history. The film she made about Myra Hindley is also worth watching. Her battles to continue with her trilogy of films on the experiences 
of the care system are, as I understand it, ongoing, which is kind of amazing because that first film is so powerful, you would have thought producers would be queuing up. From reading a little about the subject of children in care, it's clear that it's still an ongoing crisis. A little bit of data, this year in the UK, around 36,000 children and young people will enter the care system. That's 100 children every day. And it's horrendous to reflect on how many talented people, people with potential, people who should enjoy a positive start in life, will end up being funneled away from that. Last year, an independent review of children's social care called for a £2.6 billion investment to reform a system that is under, quote, extreme stress. The government response was, well, just way less than that. So something to think about. Oh, and just to say, if you have been affected by any of the difficult issues covered in my chat with Samantha, you can find information and resources at spotify.com backslash resources. At time of recording, I have not yet heard the album that Samantha's working on. I live in hope that I may get an invitation to one of the live performances. I'm curious to know what kind of music it is. So, just time for credits. This episode was produced by Paul Kobrak and Man Al-Yazari. The production manager was Francesca Bassett and the executive producer, Aaron Fellows. The music in this series is by Miguel de Oliveira. This is a Mindhouse production exclusively for Spotify. I remember living in LA when the posters went up and I was like, oh, that looks quite intriguing. Well, there were posters. There were no posters in London, I don't think, at the time. I think it's one of those ones where they opened it in America and it's a big flop and then they're like, okay, we're not going to worry about this one. Yeah.